Today, we're continuing in our preaching series, Redemption, the gospel in the book of Exodus. And so we've been working through the book of Exodus the last several weeks. Throughout this series, we have learned that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, had enslaved God's people, that they were languishing and and suffering in slavery. And then God rose up a leader. His name is Moses who then delivered them from their captivity, from their suffering. God redeemed, which means to liberate from slavery. And he did so with having a lamb pay the price for the sin of even the Israelites, who, yes, God's people, and yes, equally sinful. And so we see this incredible, just remarkable story of redemption in Exodus. And a couple of weeks ago when we were continuing the series, we saw how the Israelites had impossible odds when they had the enemy pursuing them, and they had the Red Sea in front of them, and there was no way out, and yet God, praise be to his name, always makes a way. And he redeemed his people, defeated the enemy, they crossed over into new life, pointing to what's happened to us with the gospel, from death, crossing over, from death and slavery into life that we now have with Christ. And because of his work on the cross, The book of Exodus points to God's salvation. It is not a history lesson. It is God's redemption, and it applies to us. And so today, as we continue in this series, we're going to be considering what it looks like to live a life for God after having been redeemed. And so that's where the Israelites are in their current journey. They were enslaved. They've been freed. They've crossed the Red Sea. And so that old life is behind them. Now God has a new life, a plan for them, and what does it look like to then live for God after having experienced redemption, God's mercy? And so today we're considering redemption, specifically a satisfied soul. And what are the things that would rob us of having a satisfied soul, and how must we have one? So let's read in Exodus 15 as we continue today. Exodus 15, we'll begin reading the first few verses Chapter 15, verses 22 through 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, I want you to picture the situation. It's difficult because we're 21st century. We live in a modern city. But try to picture what it would have been like. You were in slavery. You've left. You're in the wilderness. You cross the Red Sea. And as far as your eye can see, it's just desert. And they're traveling for three days. You're with your husband or with your wife. You're with your little kids. You're with your goats and your lamb. And they're bleeding and You have, you know, your cattle, and so you have all your caravan. And you had some water in your skins, and so you've been good for a couple days, but now it's been three days, and there's no sign of water, and you're following this guy Moses who's done amazing things, but now you're wondering, I don't know about this go-to-the-wilderness plan. You know, I like the idea of not being in slavery, but this whole wandering for now three days with no water, your, your kids are complaining because they're thirsty, and it's hot, and we know this in Abu Dhabi. We know kids complaining, right? Sure we do. 
And if you're honest with yourself, your throat kind of hurts because it's dry too. And you don't see anything except then in the distance you see something beautiful. You see a glimmering on the horizon and you think, oh, there's an oasis, there's water. All of a sudden you're relieved like, oh, man, this is wonderful. God does have a plan. There is a God in heaven. And you're so relieved. And you're like, okay, kids, it's just another half hour. We'll be there soon. And you get to the water, and then you take a drink, and it's gross. It's bitter. It was full of minerals and salts, and it was not, it's not good for human consumption. And so your, your lambs and your goats are thirsty, too, and, and you need water. And you thought you found it. No, it's bitter, undrinkable. And so now, now you're really frustrated, and you start complaining. Moses, what are, what are you, leader, going to do about this problem? Human nature, clearly on display here. And so what happens? Let's keep reading verses 25 and 26. And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give your ear to his commandments and keep all the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. God was gracious to them. He miraculously made this water that was undrinkable he made it sweet. He, he made it able to be consumed for humans and, of course, their animals. And so he wanted them to learn something. He loves his children, but he has something very important that we're going to see in this text. And so the main idea, if you're taking notes, the main idea from this text, we'll look at chapter 16 and the first part of 17, is that God's redeemed must learn to trust their God. And so God's redeemed must learn to trust their God. It is not intuitive. It is not natural to us to complain and to want things our way is natural to us. But as God's redeemed, we must learn to trust our God. And let's keep seeing how this unfolds. Verse 27, it's brief, but it's beautiful. And then they came to Elim. So they they kept traveling. Where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. Now that must have been sweet. Now there's some palm trees. I don't know if it was a resort. I don't know if it was quite, you know, that developed. But it was a whole lot better than being in the wilderness. Now they have legitimate oasis. There are springs of water. They're being refreshed. After the difficulty, God is so good to his people, he gives them a reprieve. He gives them a break from the pain and a break from the thirst and the heat, and he lets them be refreshed because God loves his children. And indeed, there are seasons of refreshing and a reprieve from what can be a difficult wilderness wandering. Can you imagine the kids saying, Mom, let's just stay here. Can we just hang out with the palm trees and the springs of water? But no, they had to keep going because God had a plan for them. And the plan was not hang out by the lake and palm trees. That wasn't the plan. The plan was a promised land. The plan was much bigger than just the comfort of that place. And so they had to keep going. They did rest, but they continued. Chapter 16. They set off from Elim 
and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So their grumbling was indeed not against Moses. It was against the person Moses represented, which is God himself. And so what we're seeing here is very important. It had been a month. It tells us it's the second month. If you go back and review, it was on the first month when they left. So it's been now one month since they left Egypt. So they've been out in the wilderness now for 30 days or so. And they had some refreshing. They had some food. But now the food's run out. They had their portions. I'm sure they had their rations when they left Egypt. But a month in, that's it. The food's gone. It's been consumed, and, and they're getting hungry. And the kids are again saying, Mommy, I, I want some juice. There ain't no juice. The cups are empty. The cupboard's empty. There's no food. There's nothing to give them. And so you can imagine the pain as a mom, the pain as a father saying, I don't know what to do. God has called us. He saved us. And now we're in this wilderness. And yes, it was great at the beach when we were singing and celebrating that God delivered us and defeated the enemy. But now here we are, and there's no food. And God says, don't worry. I got this. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. And he sends quail, it says in the rest of this chapter. And so they have protein, they have meat, and he rains down what they called manna. It is heavenly bread that God gave to them. But here's the thing. They were only given, they were only told to gather enough bread for one day. It says for the portion of one day. Now, he did also say that on, on the Sabbath, so on Friday, they were to gather twice as much and not gather on the Sabbath, but rest, just like God rested and remember it and keep it holy. And this is before the Ten Commandments. That comes four chapters later. But he's preparing them already for you set time apart where you rest like I rested and you remember and keep it holy. And so they had to trust God that even though there was no manna on Saturday, that the next Sunday there would be manna again. And so they had to learn to trust that their father would indeed take care of them. So what did they do? They hoarded. That's what they did. Let's read verses 
19 through 20. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. They're like, no, I don't trust that there's going to be more in the morning. I need to go ahead and hoard for me and my family because I, I, I don't know if there's going to be any more bread raining tomorrow. And Moses says, no, this is not okay with God. You need to trust him. And then same thing happened on the Sabbath. Verse 27 and 28 says, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. God said, there's not going to be any bread on Saturday, but they went out together. It says, but they found none. No bread on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Verse 28, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? How long will you continue to disobey and not trust me? Now, before we're too hard on them, because it's so easy, 21st century, looking back and just bash on all those Israelites. They were so unfaithful, and man, they just didn't get it. Well, they didn't, but we don't either. Lest we're too hard on them, we're seeing ourselves right here in this text. They were farmers. This is what they were. They, they were an agrarian people, and so they were used to planting crops. They were used to harvesting. Who in their right mind, what farmer plants and then only harvests for one day? If you do that, you're not going to be a very good farmer. You're not going to last very long in the farming industry if you're only gathering for one day. So they were already used to this. They were accustomed to you go out and you gather all of the crops so you have enough for the whole year. This was normal to them. It was their human logic and reason. Here's a problem. When we use our reason and we ignore God's revelation, we are in sin. And so there's nothing wrong with reason. Nothing wrong with using your logic. You ought to. However, we must not put logic and reason above revelation. Revelation is supreme to our reason. And so what God was saying was, trust me, take me at my word. Believe me that there's going to be bread in the morning. Trust me. He was trying to show his children that he had a plan for them. So we must learn to take God at his word. And so it says in the rest of the chapter here that they keep going. They keep traveling. It keeps raining manna. God is providing for them, and they keep traveling. And in chapter 17, it begins the next part of their journeys, and they camp in a new area in the wilderness. And guess what happens? You should probably guess it. They're out of water. Again. Again, no water. Again, what, what they had earlier has run out. No fresh supply. And so now, again, they're frustrated. They're like, well, now what are we supposed to do? There's no water. 17, verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses, why did you bring us out here so that we will die of thirst. They already forgot that God miraculously 
saved them from slavery, that God had miraculously parted the Red Sea, that he had miraculously already changed bitter water into sweet water that could be drank. They already forgot that it's been raining manna every morning. They forgot all of that. All they can see in front of them is the fact that they are thirsty and they are struggling and they want water and they're convinced that Moses has brought them out so that they will die. Verses 6 and 7, and we'll finish up, and we'll make some observations. Verse 6, behold, this is God speaking to Moses, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is God really here or not? Is God with us? And so you have this striking of the rock. And again, God miraculously now has water flowing out of this rock to provide for the needs of his children, his whiny children, but nonetheless, his children whom he loves Let's make a few clarifications as we make our observations to see how this will apply to us. One, they had legitimate needs. So let's not be too hard on them in the sense that, let's just be clear, they were hungry, just like you and I. Maybe you're hungry right now, thinking maybe, maybe he'll go short today so he can go get to lunch in the Ikea a little bit faster. Right? We're, we get hungry. We get thirsty. They were hungry. They were thirsty legitimate needs, and God was there with them. He knows and he cares when we really do have struggles and when we really do have needs. He's their father. The problem with them was their attitude was that of demanding. They wanted their needs met on their terms, not on God's terms. See, that's the thing, that even when we have legitimate needs, we have to trust that our father will provide on his terms, and he's doing it on his terms because he loves you, because he wants what's best for you. Even if you don't fully comprehend it, you have to believe by faith that what is happening, even if it's hard, is God's good plan, and he's going to use it for his purposes in your life. And so we, we must come to the point of learning, back to the main idea, his redeemed must learn how to trust him. Another observation here, another thing that we want to clarify is on two occasions, chapter 15 and in verse in chapter 16, twice, God says that he tested his people, that he, he was led to go through this to test them. It says to see whether or not they will obey his laws, keep his commandments. He even says keep his rules. He uses different words, same essence. God is saying, I'm going to test my people to see if they're really going to obey me. Now, when you and I think of rules, we usually think of a list of do's and don'ts, right? We think of this cold, hard religion that says you have to do this or God's not going to be pleased with you. You have to earn God's favor. You have to earn your salvation. And God is looking at all the good things that you do, all the bad things that you do, and then God's going to weigh it in the end. No, that is not at all what the Bible teaches, God is not saying that he wants to see if they obey so that he'll take care of them. That is not the context. Understand the context here. They were in slavery. God loved them. God redeemed them. 
They were already the recipients of God's love and of God's mercy. A lamb had already died in their place to pay for their debts, for their sins. So God had already loved them. He took the initiative to save them. He provided the lamb to die in their place. He defeated the enemy. He opened the Red Sea. He provided what they needed. He alone is glorious, and he begins, and he will end our salvation. All we are asked to do is trust him. He does the work in our salvation. We are called to trust him. They had already experienced God's mercy. And so when he says, I'm testing them, remember in the Bible, when you talk about covenant, you talk about commandments, we'll see this more in chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments. It's always in context of relationship. When God says, here, obey me, it's always in relationship. God is right there with them, which is why he got kind of angry, saying, man, why are you questioning me? I'm with you. I'm here. He's personally there with them. And so what you see here is this testing is saying, will you walk in relationship with me? Will you trust me? You see, when we trust God, it leads to obedience. And so trust is evidenced. Trust is demonstrated by obedience. So what he's saying here, will they obey me, is are we in a relationship or not? If you are, then you will obey me because he is God and we owe him everything. And he has changed our lives and given us a new life. And so this story points to Christ. It points to Christ's work. They were redeemed by slavery. But so here's the thing you have to understand. This is what's hard for us is when they left slavery, they wanted to go straight to the land flowing with milk and honey. Just like we can come to Christ, repent, believe in the gospel, get the Holy Spirit who's inside of us, and then we think that there's no more problems. And it's as if you come to Christ and you go straight to heaven. Is that true? No. You come to Christ and you still live here, now, on this earth that has fallen, that has problems. And maybe your husband or wife doesn't believe in Christ, and you do. And you come to Christ, but that doesn't change him or her. Maybe you have a job that's difficult, that doesn't change just because you came to Christ. Maybe you have an illness that doesn't change because you came to Christ. We are still in the wilderness. And so the parallel, they had been saved by God, but in front of them was a life of being in the wilderness, awaiting that day when they would finally reach the promised land. Much like you and I receive Christ and we live life in the wilderness, learning to trust God just like they had to do. As we wait for that glorious day when we will reach our eternal promised land and be with Christ forever on the new heavens and the new earth. That's what awaits us. But we're not there yet. We're not in the promised land. This life is a wilderness wandering of learning how to trust God in the heat this life can sometimes be hot and painful, and we tend to grumble, and we, we complain about the littlest things. I mean, like this morning, I'll, I'll, I'll confess to you, a three-hour-old sin, right? My wife took a shower first. I'm showering, and there's no hot water. Why is there no hot water? Well, because it's not summer. Because in the summer, you can take, you can take an hour-long shower, and there's, it's always hot. 
right? You can have an awesome hot shower, but here in November, no, you got five minutes. Maybe. Like by minute three, it's already getting kind of cool. By minute five, that's it. It's a cold shower. And I was like in minute three, and I was like, oh, man, she took a shower first. She had gone in here before she did. And so now I have this cold shower. And you know what I thought? I couldn't believe it. This thought crossed my mind. I thought, I wish it were summer. (gasps) I had this thought that came into my head, and I could not. I had to rebuke that thought. That's from Satan. To be in Abu Dhabi and to issue a summer is preposterous. But what it does is in that moment of foolishness, when I was uncomfortable with not a very hot shower, I actually longed for something that is not that great, which is summer in Abu Dhabi. All I wanted was relief from the frustration in that moment. And you and I are not that different. And the Israelites are not that different from us. We look at what's right in front of us right here, and we lose sight of the fact that God has something in store that is so much greater than you and I could ever imagine in our lives and for our church as a whole. And sometimes it's hot. Sometimes it's hard, and you're thirsty, and you're hungry, and the wilderness isn't always easy. But it's the arena of this life. And as we grow in our sanctification, grow to be like Christ, where we learn to trust God. Trusting him is a remedy for all those things that would trouble our hearts. And so I want to give you three thoughts, just tangible, hands-on, three troubles that our hearts can have and show you how trusting in God is a remedy for what troubles your heart it troubled theirs, and it troubled ours today. And so the first one, so number one, trusting God is a remedy for your anxiety. Trusting God is a remedy for your anxiety. We become anxious when we feel that we've lost control in our lives. And so think to yourself, what causes you anxiety? What causes you to be worried? What causes you to kind of panic sometimes? What is it that causes you anxiousness. If you're honest, likelihood, it's something that you can't fix. Something that's out of your control, that you're powerless to change, and the fact that you can't control it causes you to be anxious. The Israelites kept grumbling and complaining. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? God, when are you going to show up? You see, they had lost control. They couldn't change their circumstances, and God's the one that had led them to the wilderness. This is God's plan for their lives. And yet, they were very anxious. You see, they should remember that God himself led them there, and God himself was with them, and that God is in control. And if they had been resting in that and trusting in him, it would have caused far less anxiety. The Israelites needed to be in the wilderness, and you and I need it as well. We need it. Now, we don't like it. We wouldn't hang out by the palm trees, but we need the wilderness of our lives. Why? Well, it prepares us for future challenges. The Israelites had many new challenges that they didn't know about. 
that if you keep reading in Exodus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy and then in Joshua, you see that there were many challenges that they didn't know about and they needed to be prepared. And so God was using this to prepare them for what lied ahead. Next, you know what it does? It shows us our weaknesses. Being in the wilderness of our lives exposes where we're weak and we remember that we need God. And then it shows that God is powerful to provide. And so when we are prepared for future challenges, when we see that we're weak and we see that God is strong, what is this cultivating in our hearts? Trust. It cultivates greater faith in God, living a life that truly pleases Him. But it doesn't happen by the palm trees. It happens in the wilderness. It teaches us to trust God. When we feel that things are out of control and we can't, we can't stop what's happening, most of us, our first response is try and take control. We want to manipulate. We want to control. We want to do whatever we can to manage. And even if it's people, control people or circumstances. And we, we try our best. And what it does is it just creates anxiety. The Israelites wanted to control their circumstances. How? What was the only thing they could possibly do to control their circumstances? Complain. They could just grumble. That's their only recourse. I mean, they were in the wilderness. They didn't have anything else they could do. So they used the one tool that they could to control, which was to grumble. And so rather than trying to control the circumstances, we need to truly learn to rest and trust God. This is important, but this is hard. This is hard for me as much as it is for you to not want it in our terms. But God is not interested in changing your circumstances necessarily. He's most interested in changing your heart. That's what God is after. He doesn't want you more comfortable. He wants you more faithful, more obedience to him. God never promised that we would leave this desert. He never promised that we would leave this fallen world but he, in his wisdom, allows us to live in this brokenness so that we can then display his glory in this broken world as we await the final consummation of his plan. Christ is crowned, and we will see the new heavens and new earth. Until that day comes, we continue this life of faith, resting in him so that we're not as stressed or as anxious. God is with you. He's not absent. He's right there with you, and you want to transform your heart and let you see his redemption continue in your life. And so trusting God is, number one, remedy for your anxiety. Number two, it's trusting God's remedy for, number two, for your anger. So one, your anxiety. Two, your anger. When do we get angry? In my observations, in my life, and in many that I've counseled, we get angry when we have unmet expectations in our life. When we have expectations, there's things that we expect, how life should be in our mind. We have it all figured out on how we think our life should turn out. And when those expectations are not being met, we tend to get angry. We tend to get really frustrated. And so ask yourself, what are your expectations for your life? When you map out in your mind what your life should look like, what are your expectations? Do you expect to have challenges? You should. The Israelites, their expectations was not to be hungry, not to be thirsty, to go straight to the promised land, 
It'd be easy, comfortable, straight route, and that didn't happen. And so they got angry, kept complaining and getting frustrated with Moses, which, by the way, be very careful, especially if you're married. In my experience, 13 years, I'm telling you, is whenever there's high stress and your expectations really aren't being met, what tends to happen is you, you start to attack your spouse, you attack your wife, you attack your husband, you attack your kids, you attack those closest to you and take it out on them because your expectations aren't being met and you're not trusting God. And so you lash out and you turn on others rather than trusting in God. Don't blame others. The Israelites blamed Moses. It's your fault. No, it's not. It's not her fault. It's not his fault that your life is how it is. Don't blame her. Don't blame him for your problems. Is it possible that God has allowed these problems in your life because he has a plan for you and somehow in his wisdom he has allowed it for his glory and for your blessing? But to see it with this new set of eyes, requires faith, looking to Christ crucified and knowing that he did that for you. Why do we complain? Why do we get angry and complain? You know why, honestly? Because we think it works. We think it works. We think if I complain loud enough, long enough, often enough, someone's going to hear my pity party and they're going to come help me. They're going to change my horrible circumstances. This which is just this, this bane of my existence, if I just complain about it, then maybe someone, maybe God, I don't know or care who, somehow it's going to change. Like when I take my kids out. I'll say, okay, you can order this. You know, and, and no one orders something. Now. I'm like, no, you're not ordering that. Not healthy. But I want ice cream. no. Please, 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 please. Like, okay, hold on a second. Do you think by saying please repeatedly with this high, shrill voice, you think that's going to change the fact that it's not healthy for you? Is that going to change the fact that I want to be a good father to you, and so I'm still going to say no? I'll just say no more often. No. 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 No again. Uh, No. No. Sorry. No ice cream. Not, not today. Maybe tomorrow, but not this time. Because I know what's better for my child than she knows. But she thinks that by complaining and whining, it's going to change my mind. Let me tell you, never changed my mind. If you're a parent that you might have changed by complaining, woe to you. I'm serious. I'm serious. Sidebar here, all right? This, this, this one's free. Not in the notes. If you let your kids complaining change your parenting, who is parenting? God does not change what's best for his children because they complain, but we think it'll work. It won't. It'll rob you of your joy. That's, and everyone else around you, that's all it's going to do. I'm telling you. That's all it's going to do. This is a great insult to God. He was busy at work leading them, changing their hearts, 
using them for his glory, for their blessing. He's right there with them. God is providing for them. He's a good father. He's not spoiling them. He's a good father. And all they do is complain and grumble and make accusations. And you don't love us, and we're going to die, and you're not with us, really. It would be like moms. Picture yourself in the kitchen, all right, busy at work, preparing this wonderful dinner for your whole family, all right? This is not easy. I wash my wife. I know it's not easy work, right? And so you're in the kitchen working hard. The pots are all, you know, all going, whatever. And then in comes your son. He looks at you working in the kitchen, and he says, are we going to eat or what? Not good for the offspring. Not in my home, at least. Wrong question. It's like, can't you see that she's working? What you, want to, what, you want to die? Don't ask that question. It's an insult. Clearly, you're going to eat. Clearly, she's at work preparing the meal. Don't question when you can see her doing her best to provide and to do what's best for you. That was the Israelites, not trusting, demanding, rather than resting in Enjoying God's presence in their lives. It's very important. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? Usually it's very selfish. Now, we can get angry over things that are horrible and have this righteous indignation like Jesus in the temple. And that's good anger. It's directed towards evil. And so he was angry over evil. So that's not sin. So if you're angry over sin, well, that's one thing. But if you're angry because you're not getting your way, if it's selfish, repent. And trust God. Turn to him. Run to him. And you'll see your anger begin to dissipate. And so trusting God is the remedy for our anxiety, our anger. Number three, as we close, avoidance. Thinking avoidance, what do you mean? I'm talking about Avoiding as in trying to escape from the realities of life. We all tend to do this. We all tend to want to escape to just avoid the reality of what is in our lives. The Israelites kept on fantasizing, kept thinking and meditating and going back to, oh, the good old days in Egypt when we were in slavery. Because we had pots full of meat. And they were fantasizing about this meat because they were so hungry. They forgot it wasn't good in Egypt. It was horrible. They were enslaved. But they were trying to escape from the reality of the wilderness, the reality of learning to trust God in the heat and the pain and the hunger and the thirst. They were fantasizing. They were escaping by going back to these pots of meat. And there's extreme cases of avoiding of this escapism. One, of course, is drugs, alcohol, sexual addictions. These are all extreme cases of of avoidance, of, of escaping from reality. But there's many more subtle ways that people in this room, I guarantee it, most people in this room, on some level, we can all be guilty of this, much more subtle ways of escaping Things like constantly checking your email. Why do you do that? Why do you check it 10 times a day? Now, if it's for your work and it's legitimate and God sees your heart, that's okay. But is, is, is it that? Is it really that? Or something else? 
why you are constantly checking your email. Why do you spend endless hours on Facebook or on other social media? Is it necessary? Is it productive? Or are you escaping from being with your kids or your husband or cleaning the house? Be serious. Are you escaping your reality by retreating into TV and watching aimless hours of worthless television? And you're just escaping. You're trying to avoid the reality of your world. What about checking sports scores constantly as a means to escape? We're just constant web surfing, just seeing what's on the web all the time. Avoiding, not engaging your mind with Christ, and not engaging your mind and your wife, your husband, or your children not engaging it in the things of Christ and reading his word, not engaging your mind in prayer, not engaging your soul in the things that are eternal. Instead, you retreat from the desert and you don't want to face the realities of the things in your soul that maybe aren't healthy. And instead of turning to Christ, instead, we retreat. Avoidance. We escape through many Jesus is the bread of life, as we read earlier in the text in John 6. He came from heaven. He is the one who was rained down. Jesus came from heaven as the ultimate manna, the bread from heaven, and he is living water. He alone will satisfy. There's a reason why Moses struck the rock and water flowed out, because it points to Christ, who Christ is the rock who was struck dead so that life would flow from the cross for all those who repent and believe in Jesus and have our souls satisfied and our hunger satiated, or thirst rather. That is what Jesus does. He alone can satisfy your hunger and your thirst because he alone is a living water who was struck dead but resurrected, paid the price for you and offers you a truly satisfied soul. You don't have to live with anxiety or anger or avoidance. You don't need to. You can have a soul that is satisfied and whole and healthy and on fire for Christ and that endures the pain of the wilderness with grace as you point others to being satisfied with the true bread of life who is Jesus, Messiah. May we not be satisfied with what this world has to offer. And we have a satisfied soul, which only comes through Christ. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads just for a moment and pray with me and think with me about this deep spiritual truth. Maybe there's someone in this room who for the first time has understood that you indeed are a sinner and you have offended a holy God and you do not deserve his goodness and you cannot earn his goodness, but he offers it to you freely because Jesus died in your place. Will you repent today, believe in Christ, and let him satisfy you? Maybe you are a believer already and yet you find yourself still escaping or having anxiety or anger and you need to turn afresh to God. 
This morning we're going to partake of the Lord's table in communion. A demonstration of the gospel, how Christ has saved us. And so let's spend a moment in contemplation and repentance and turning back to Christ. And as I call the worship team and the men to part of the Lord's table, please come to the front right now. I'm, I'm going to ask them to come to the front and to get ready for us to spend a few moments in solitude and in just a minute be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus endeared for us on the cross. This is a holy moment. Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to look at your word, this opportunity, Father, for us to think about how you are good and how we are unworthy and how we complain and we doubt you and we want everything on our terms, and yet you are good and merciful, and you love us, and you want what's best for us. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that for the first time is coming to grips with their sin. I pray, Lord, that he or she would turn away from their sin and turn to you with wholehearted obedience and trust. I pray, Father, for believers in the room that need to reconnect with you and draw near to you all over again, that you would be real to them and that we would live lives that are transformed for your glory. We need you, Jesus. We're desperate for you, for you alone are the bread from heaven and living water who satisfy us. We praise you and worship you alone in the name of Jesus. We pray.